Some years ago, I heard about a minister <clears throat> up in Kansas named Joe Wright. I don't know if you remember hearing about his prayer. He was asked to give uh, the invocation that opened the Kansas Senate, and everyone was sort of expecting that he would give the usual, you know, general prayer of just kind of God bless our government and help our officials and whatnot. But when Joe Wright stood up and took the microphone to pray, everybody heard these words instead. Heavenly Father, we come before you today to ask for your forgiveness and to seek your direction and guidance. We know your word says, woe to those who call evil good, but that's exactly what we have done. We've lost our spiritual equilibrium and reversed our values. We confess that we have ridiculed the absolute truth of your word and called it pluralism. We've worshipped other gods and called it multi multiculturalism. We've endorsed perversion and call it alternative lifestyle. We've exploited the poor and called it the lottery. We've neglected the needy and called it self-preservation. We have rewarded laziness and called it welfare. We've killed our unborn children and we call it choice. We've shot abortionists and called it justifiable. We've neglected to discipline our children and call it building self-esteem. We've abused power and we call it political savvy. We've coveted our neighbor's possessions and we call it ambition. We've polluted the air with profanity and we called it freedom of expression. We've ridiculed the time-honored values of our forefathers and called it enlightenment. Search us, O God, and know our hearts today. Cleanse us from every sin and set us free. Guide and bless these men and women who have been sent to direct us to the center of your will. I ask it in the name of your Son, the living Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Paul Harvey got a hold of that, <clears throat> and he aired it on his radio, his radio program, The Rest of the Story, and he received a larger response from that airing than from any other program that he's ever aired. It's amazing how insightful our brother Joe Wright was as he spoke that day, as he prayed. There was a survey done here in the States by Gallup. The Gallup survey asked people whether or not they agreed with the following statement, quote, there are clear guidelines about what is good or evil that apply to everyone regardless of their situation. Two-thirds disagreed with that statement. It's not a big surprise for us here in America, especially even this uh, Gallup survey is a little dated. And today I, I think we'd be uh, shocked <laughs> at what those percentages are today. But uh, it's easy for us to point to, you know, the government or to the big bag culture in which we live. But the reality is that we also fall prey to the same mindset of situational ethics, of uh, honestly struggling with absolute truth in certain situations. We find ourselves in, we wonder, does God's word really work here? Or... Uh, or do we need to sort of decide for ourselves? George Barna also did a survey that, that revealed that the figures for those who call themselves born-again Christians are no different 
than those who make no claim to faith. I think a lot of times what keeps us from experiencing what God has promised in our Christian lives is fear. <clears throat> we want to have faith in what God says, but fear of what we see seems so much more compelling than what God has said. Gideon knew this very, very well. Gideon longed to believe God, but he struggled with what he saw versus what God said. And I mention Gideon because the challenge that Gideon faced is the challenge that we Christians face in America today, and honestly, it's the challenge that we face in our personal lives day by day as we walk with God. So let's look together at the brief little biography of Gideon in the book of Judges. Judges chapter 6. Judges 6. There's a phrase repeated in the book of Judges which summarizes the moral state of Israel at that time. And that is, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The phrase is repeated twice like that, and then there's another time that it's sort of summarized in a, in a similar way. But the idea is basically that there was no, there's no morality, there's no one encouraging them to walk with God. There was no leader leading. It was every man for himself. You were given the, the law of God and basically allowed to decide whether or not it worked for you. The basis of decisions was common sense, personal values not God's word. Interesting, remember last week when we looked at Joshua, Joshua 24, that's exactly what Joshua told the people not to do. He said, um, choose today whom you will serve, whether it's going to be the Amorites in the land that you're living or the gods that your parents served, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Well, the Amorites in the land they were living or the Canaanites in which the land that they were living the first couple of chapters of the book of Judges, we won't look at, but if we were to look at it, we would see a repeated theme that this particular tribe didn't drive out the Canaanites living there. This particular tribe didn't drive out the Canaanites living there, and as a result, they became a thorn in the sides of God's people. And over the course of time, instead of rejecting the culture, eventually Israel began to embrace the culture and Israel then became indistinct from the culture. And this is true not in it, just in Israel, but it's true anywhere that God's word is not held as the basis of our truth. Uh, Joshua reminded them. He said, if you obey, God, God says, if you obey, I will bless you. If you disobey, I will curse you. And the way that I will curse you is not only will it rain, not rain, and you won't have food, but I will also allow foreign powers to come in and to, um, to dominate you. And this is exactly what we see in the book of Judges. The book of Judges is a, is a book that looks at the period between Joshua and the kings. The and so when Israel said there was no king at this time, there's no one steering the ship. 
you've just got this sort of federation of 12 tribes doing their own thing. And if, if they were not to follow God, God would allow foreign nations to come in and dominate. And you see repeatedly in the book of Judges that this is what happens. God allows a foreign nation to come in, and they, uh, Israel says, you know what, maybe we should turn to the Lord, turn back to the Lord. And they do, and they cry out to the Lord, and the Lord provided a judge who would deliver them from the foreign oppressor. Now, a judge, when we hear judge, we think somebody, you know, sitting behind a bench slamming a gavel. But a judge was uh, a political deliverer and a spiritual leader. It wasn't just, um, you know, someone who decided the law. It was someone who led them militarily and spiritually. In 1 Corinthians, Paul tells Christians, are you, are you not competent to judge one another or to have to make judgments on one another. And then he says, don't you know that you will judge angels? He's talking about a time in the millennial kingdom when we as the saints ruling with Jesus Christ will have authority over angels. Not that we will judge angels in the sense of, you know, judging them for, for their works, but rather ruling them, having authority. And it's that sense of the book of Judges. You've got a leader and God raised up some judges. And when the judge would deliver them, then Israel would get back into this state of sort of complacency spiritually, and they would drift off the road again. It's sort of like, you know, when you're driving down the road and your car needs, uh, it's out of alignment. If you take your hand off the steering wheel for a moment, and if your car is out of alignment, what happens? You immediately start drifting. And if you don't grab the wheel, you're going to end up in the ditch. This is what it's like in the spiritual life. We are out of alignment. As much, even on our best days walking with Christ, if we take our hand off the wheel and we are not continuing to focus on the Lord, we will end up in the ditch because our flesh and our, our sinful nature is such that it doesn't guide us to God. It guides us away. Our default is to wander like sheep. We have to focus and decide with our hands on the wheel and choose this day whom we will serve. Otherwise, we'll drift off. That's what happened in Judges. And there was seven cycles of this repetition when they would, they would decide in complacency, we don't need the Lord, we'll kind of do our own thing, what's right in our eyes. They would sin, God would bring in a foreign oppressor, they would cry out, God would raise up a judge who would deliver them, then they'd be back in good with God. And there was this circle that happened over and over, except, unfortunately, it wasn't just a circle. Uh, I got tickled back, you remember the, uh, uh, the basketball player Jason Kidd when he signed on with the Dallas Mavericks? He made a statement when he signed on that I thought was funny. He said, uh, we're going to turn this team around 360 degrees. <laughs> I love that. Because that's the book of Judges. You know, you're just right back where you started. You're really not making any progress. Except with judges, it wasn't just a circle. It was a spiral. It, they'd come around, but every time they came around, it got lower and lower and lower. It was this descending spiral from a really good judge all the way down to Samson. Othniel was the first judge. What a godly, godly man. Samson was the last judge. What an ungodly man. And that happened as a result of this spiral seven times throughout several centuries in which Israel just got worse and worse and worse. Well, the pivot 
in the book of Judges is Gideon. Chapter 6 begins by telling us that, evil, that, that Israel did evil, and so God disciplined them, just like he had, by allowing the Midianites to raid the land. You can always remember who the enemy was because it rhymes with Gideon. It's Midian. Gideon, Midian. You can, that's how I remember it anyway. I have to have these little devices to help me remember things, and that's a good way to remember. Who did Gideon fight? The Midianites. And it took a national tragedy just like it does today, to get us to go back to church, to get us to go to God. It takes something drastic to wake us up, to shake us from our stupor, and to come to the Lord and to to get our hands back on the wheel. God raised up Gideon, and God made Gideon a promise. Look at Judges 6, verse 16. Judges 6, 16. The Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat Midian as one man. So Gideon said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. So Gideon is given a promise. Uh, Actually, two promises here. First of all, surely I will be with you. God tells him, you're not alone. I'm going to be with you. And the second promise is this. You shall defeat Midian as one man. God has said it. There is a promise. You're going to do it, Gideon. You're going to defeat them. But Gideon's response isn't that admirable. We can understand it, but it's not the ideal response. Notice he starts with the word if. If now I have found favor in your sight, show me a sign. He didn't say, oh, thank you, God. Let's go for it. He says, God, I'm not really sure if I'm even talking to you. And we won't read the details, but God graciously confirms very clearly that it is him speaking. So Gideon calls together together the army of Israel. And when we do some cross-referencing and some math, we figure out, that Gideon calls together 32,000 Israelites. Uh, That's a lot of people. But it's not as many as the Midianites had. Again, if we do some cross-referencing, we realize that Midian had 135,000. So 32,000 versus 135,000. That's about four times as many people. That is, the odds are not great. And all of a sudden, Gideon becomes uncertain whether or not God really meant what he said, even though God said he would do it. So look at verse 36, at what Gideon says to God. Look down at verse 36. Then Gideon said to God, If you will deliver Israel through me as you have spoken, behold, I will put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece only and it's dry on the ground, then I will know that you will deliver Israel through me as you have spoken. And it was so. When he arose early in the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he drained the dew from the fleece, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, Do not let your anger burn against me, that I may speak once more. Please now make me a test once more with the fleece. Let it now be dry only on the fleece, and then let there be dew on all the ground. So God did that so that night, for it was dry only on the fleece, 
and dew was on all the ground. <laughs> Twice, as in these verses we read, Gideon admits that God has already told him, you're going to have victory. He mentions in verse 36, as you have spoken, and verse 37, as you have spoken. God, you told me I'm going to have victory. Now, just so I'll know that I'll have victory, let's do a little test. I got this fleece here, you know, and he puts this, this fleece on the ground and soaks up all the dew, and then he figures, well, you know, that could happen. Let's keep the, dew, the, the fleece dry this time. And so twice God acquiesces to this request for this, uh, this sign, and as a result, it, it really gives no strength to, um, to Gideon's faith. I heard about a young man one time that was praying to God for a wife. This is a true story. I need to tell you it's a true story before I continue telling you because it sounds so crazy. Well, he was praying for a wife, and he didn't know how God was going to show him who to marry. And so he met this girl, and he just so happened when he went home, you know, he went home to meet her parents or somehow, he got in contact with the fact that this girl had a chihuahua with an ear that had a notch out of it. And this man grew up with a chihuahua with an ear that had a notch out of it. This is a sign from God. And I think he ended up marrying her because of that chihuahua. Now, God can use anything, but a chihuahua with an, a special ear is probably not the best way to do it. Here's another true story. Um, I knew a Christian lady back when I was in the pastorate. I knew a Christian lady who got engaged to an unbeliever, and she sat in my office, and he was right there beside her, sat in my office, and I said, uh, why are you marrying this guy? I mean, he's sitting right there. Why are you marrying this guy? He, he doesn't know the Lord. And, she's, and we actually opened the Bible, and we read together where the Bible says that you should not be unequally yoked. And I said, you know, that, that, that principle goes pretty broadly, and it definitely applies in this situation. So why are you doing this when God's Word says not to do it? She says, well, she says, I prayed about it, and I feel like it's God's will. And I told her, I said, you didn't need to pray about it for two minutes because God clearly tells you it's not his will for you to marry this guy. And, but she went ahead and did it. Uh, when Kathy and I were dating, she, uh, she stepped out, which is really good. <laughs> when Kathy and I were dating, I was a music major in college. Uh, classical guitar, University of North Texas, you know, music was my life at that time. Guess what Kathy's maiden name was? Music. M-U-S-I-C-K. Music. Now, I could have said, God, this is a sign from you, but I needed more than that. In fact, I just thought that was a, kind of a funny coincidence. But the reality is, Kathy and I were both walking with the Lord at the time, and so I realized that, I remember praying. I went to the fourth floor of the music, of the library there on the university. I can still remember, I could go there today and show you the place where I was sitting and praying, because it, our relationship had gotten to the point now where it's like, hey, buddy, you know, you either need to propose or, you know, turn her loose for, for someone else who wants to grab this catch. 
And I realized, said, Lord, and I was fearful because both my parents had been married and divorced multiple times, and this whole marriage thing just hadn't really proven itself to me. And I was, uh, I was, I was afraid. And so I just remember sitting there praying, saying, Lord, uh, she's, she clearly qualifies. She's a godly woman. There's nothing in your word that gives me any red light except my fear. And, and God's word was what he used to push me forward. Uh, God's word came to mind. I was there praying, and he, he brought to my mind Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, which we're very familiar with, which says that if you trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him, he will make your path straight. And I just, I prayed that over and over and over, and it's like, you know, God's saying, well, now what are you going to do? You got no more excuse. And I thought, you know what? you're right, I got no more excuse. So I said, I'm, I'm going forward, and I said, but Lord, stop me if this isn't what you want me to do. And he never stopped me, and it's been 30 years this month. <laughs> Praise the Lord. But my point is simply this, that... When we're looking for the will of God, we look in the Word of God. The Word of God gives us the will of God. There's a lots of chihuahuas out there. That's not necessarily the will of God. There's lots of feelings, especially when they contradict the will of God, the Word of God. We seek God's will in God's Word. And even if God does acquiesce to us and give us a sign which sometimes he does. Here's the crazy thing. God giving us a sign doesn't remove the circumstances that force us to trust him in the first place. The fleece didn't get rid of the Midianites. They were still there. So it's almost like God telling Gideon, okay, dry fleece, you got it. Wet fleece, you got it. But the Midianites are still there. What are you going to do? Gideon still had to trust God, and that was his problem. Look at chapter 7, verse 1. Then Jeroboam, or that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and camped beside the spring of Harod. And the camp of Midian was on the north side of them by the hill of Moreh in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, The people who are with you are too many for me to give Midian into your hands. For Israel would become boastful, saying, My own power has delivered me. Now therefore come. Proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, Whoever is afraid and trembling, let him return and depart from Mount Gilead. So 22,000 people returned, but 10,000 remained. Gideon only had 32,000 to begin with. 22,000 left, and now he's just got 10. God says, Gideon, tell, tell whoever's afraid to just go on home. <laughs> you kind of wonder if Gideon thought, can I go home too? <laughs> because Gideon clearly was afraid. And it's wonderful. Geography doesn't change. If you were to go to Israel today, you could stand at the spring of Harod, or sometimes it's called Gideon Spring or Ein Harod. We know where it is. Springs don't move. You could stand right there. I've stood right there before. With this. If you stand there and the spring's behind, you can look across the valley. You can see the hill of Moreh right there, and you can just picture in 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 uh, Gideon's mind, or Gideon's position, what he was fearing. Because you can see right there 
where all these 135,000 Midianites camped, and you're standing here on what's called Mount Gilead, which is Mount Gilboa, with only 10,000 now remaining, but the 135,000, not a one of them has left. God helped Gideon understand uh, a principle that is helpful for us as well, that the Lord is going to place us in circumstances to free us from fear and to convince us that he can do what he promises. Think about your life. Hasn't he done that many times? You've been afraid in a circumstance, and instead of God giving you relief, he pushes you forward into that fearful circumstance. And in the midst of that, which you were, do, did everything you could to pray and wiggle out of, God shows himself faithful. And you emerge from that fearful circumstance with a greater faith and a greater confidence in God and less confidence in your fear. That's what he was trying to do with Gideon. Look at verse 4. Then the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Bring them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. Therefore it shall be that he of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, he shall go with you. But everyone of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, you shall separate everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, as well as everyone who kneels to drink. Now the number of those who lapped, putting their hand to their mouth, was 300 men, but all the rest of the people kneeled to drink water. The Lord said to Gideon, I will deliver you with the 300 men who lapped and will give the Midianites into your hands. So let all the other people go, each man to his home. So the 300 men took the people's provisions and their trumpets into their hands, and Gideon sent all the other men of Israel, each to his tent, but retained the 300 men, and the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. <laughs> I love how the text continues to bring that up. Midian hasn't gone anywhere. And Gideon has now gone from uh, thousands to 300. 300 versus 135,000. Poor Gideon. The odds were just getting worse and worse and worse. And what God was doing was also highlighting the real problem for Gideon. The real problem for Gideon wasn't Midian. It was Gideon and his fear. And God put him in a situation that made him more afraid and more afraid and more afraid to highlight Gideon's real problem. It wasn't the Midianites. It was Gideon's fear. If the odds were bad at four to one, how are they now uh, from at 450 to one? That's what the odds are at this point. God places us in circumstances to free us from fear and to convince us he can do what he promises. Uh, I read this. This, is, this isn't real, but I, uh, it's, it's really funny. If you were to call the mental health hotline, this is what you would hear. Of course, no one would answer. It would be this, this uh, voicemail. Give you options. Welcome to the mental health hotline. If you are obsessive compulsive, press one repeatedly. 
If you're codependent, please ask someone to press 2 for you. If you have multiple personalities, press 3, 4, 5, and 6. <laughs> if you are delusional, press 7 and, and your call will be transferred to the mothership. If you are schizophrenic, listen carefully and a small voice will tell you what number to press. If you are manic-depressive, it doesn't matter what number you press, no one will answer. If you're dyslexic, press 9696969696. If you have amnesia, press 8 and state your name, address, phone number, date of birth, social security, and your mother's maiden name. If you have short-term memory loss, press 9. If you have short-term memory loss, press 9. If you have low self-esteem, please hang up because all our operators are too busy to talk with you. <laughs> if you're paranoid and fearful, we know who you are and what you want. Stay on the line. We are tracing your call. <laughs> that last one was Gideon. If Gideon had called the mental health hotline, <laughs> he would have been the paranoid and fearful. And just as the Lord had to do repeatedly with Gideon, he may have to do with us. He may have to place us in situations in which we feel afraid to convince us that he can do uh, what he promises. You see, God reducing Gideon's army to just 300 people wasn't simply to glorify God by delivering with only 300. That was part of it, clearly. That's what the Lord said. But it was also on a personal basis done to put Gideon in a position to where his fear would be exposed. His real issue wasn't uh, a wet fleece, dry fleece. He didn't need a sign. Gideon's real issue was, is he going to believe God or not? And to help him understand that and to help him remove his fear, look at what God told him in verse 9. The same night... So right after everything is reduced to 300 men. Now on the same night it came about the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hands. But if you are afraid to go down, go with Pura, your servant, down to the camp, and you will hear what they say. And afterward your hands will be strengthened that you may go down against the camp. So... No big surprise, he went with Pura, his servant, down to the outpost of the army that was in the camp. Now the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the sons of the east were lying in the valley, as numerous as locusts, and their camels were without number, as numerous as the sand on the seashore. When Gideon came, behold, a man was relating a dream to his friend, and he said, Behold, I've had a dream. A loaf of barley bread was tumbling into the camp of Midian, and it came to the tent and struck it so that it, fe so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. His friend replied, This is nothing less than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, the, the, a man of Israel. God has given Midian and all the camp of Israel into his hand. Now, notice the statement, God has given Midian and all the camp into his hand. This 
dream that this enemy had that Gideon overheard. Gideon just so happened to come upon this particular individual who had this dream. Repeats the very promise that God gave to Gideon. Back in verse 9, look at that again. It says, the Lord said, Arise, go down against the camp. I have given it into your hand. Verse 14, here's what the dream said. God has given Midian and all the camp into his hand. There's no coincidence there. And here the Lord graciously encourages um, Gideon's weak heart in a situation that could not be a coincidence. But this is different than the fleece. Because in this, it wasn't just this random thing that could be a coincidence. This was God confirming his word. This random coincidence focused on the word of God. It wasn't just a situation like a chihuahua. It was God's word being confirmed. And this strengthened Gideon's heart. Verse 15 says this, When Gideon heard the account of the dream and its interpretation, he bowed in worship. He returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the camp of Midian into your hands. And Gideon goes on, we won't read the rest, but Gideon goes on with his 300 and defeats the, the Midianites, the 135,000 Midianites, just as God said. Now, if you were to read, read on, you'd see that Gideon's life eventually becomes a bit of a disappointment. Like I said, the book of Judges and Gideon is the pivot. He is sort of the pivot from those good judges, marginally good judges, Gideon, marginally bad to the bad judges that continue on throughout the rest of the book. The focal point of the book of Judges is Gideon, and Gideon is the hinge. How do we know the focal point? It's, it's something in the Hebrew text. In fact, the Hebrew text is it's a miracle in and of itself. This, this sort of sounds like the Bible code and it sounds a little woo-woo, I confess. But if you look at the Hebrew text, or at least look at the book that talks about the Hebrew text, there are the way that the Hebrew text is written all throughout Scripture is in a, a, an amazing arrangement called chiasms. That you have, you know, like you remember chiasm when you sh study like Shakespeare and all that sonnet stuff? You had A and then B and then C and then B prime and then A prime. It sort of went out and came in where you had parts that related to one another and the most important part was in the middle. The Hebrew text was written that way not to give us some kind of divine insight by itself but also to help with memory. The Hebrew text was meant to be heard not just read. In fact, it was primarily written to be heard. And so um, we see sort of these, uh, these memory devices occasionally, even in our translations, like with Psalm 119. You see that it's written uh, in an acrostic. We, we, it's a very familiar thing. If you were to read Psalm 119, there's probably some note in your margin that says, every verse begins with this Hebrew letter. Every verse begins with this Hebrew letter. But here's the bottom line. My point is that God supernaturally caused the writers of the Hebrew text to, it's inspired to give an emphasis. And in the book of Judges, there is this huge chiasm that focuses on Gideon. Gideon is the pivot in the book. And this 
incident that we read in Gideon's life is the pivot in the book. It's the hinge upon which the whole thing swings. Gideon's faith, is he going to believe God's word? And why is that so pivotal? Because in the book of Judges, remember, it was God's word that was either the problem or not the problem with people doing uh, what's right in their own eyes as opposed to what's right in the eyes of God. Gideon assumed that the odds continually changing, his army being reduced more and more and more, also changed God's word. And that's why he doubted. We see that in our lives. We definitely see that in our culture, but we see that in our lives, where we know what God's word says. This is why the dear sister in Christ who I talked with that day who wanted to marry the unbeliever got to that point because she had waited on God so long that surely this must be an exception. Surely God's word must not apply here because my feelings are overwhelmingly this direction even though God's word leads me this direction. This is our challenge, whether it's on big issues like marriage or whether it's on small issues like daily decisions that we make. David Ray has a book called The Big Small Church Book in which he writes these words. Listen to this. He says, throughout Scripture, God affirms the few, the small, the insignificant who live by faithfulness rather than by forcefulness. With few exceptions, biblical faithfulness does not come from or result in large numbers. God is willing to spare Sodom and Gomorrah if only ten righteous people can be found. Christ is present where only two or three gather in his name. The widow's might is the largest gift. The boy with a few loaves and fish provide food for thousands. Jesus fed 5,000 but only shared the Lord's Supper with 12. He was revealed to two in Emmaus as they broke bread. The mustard seed, the pearl of great price, the leaven in the loaf, the lost sheep and coin, the sparrows, the numbered hairs on a person's head are all powerful truths that the small can be theologically mighty. So let me ask you this, and I hope that you'll really think about it in your mind. What are you so afraid of? What is the one big thing that you're afraid of? Because so often that one thing is what keeps us from enjoying what God has promised in our lives. For Gideon, his fear was 135 Midianites. And if I were Gideon, that'd probably be my big one thing. But what's your big one thing? We want so badly to have faith that what God says is true, but our fear of what we see seems so much more compelling than what God has said. And as a result, we do what's right in our own eyes. And we go with what we see rather than what God has said. Our problem is like Gideon's, and thankfully, our solution is like Gideon's. God is going to place us graciously in places that force us to face that one fear that you would not face, that you would run from otherwise. And when you can't wiggle out, God shows up, just like he did with Gideon. And he shows himself faithful 
just like he's done before in your life and in my life. And what do you know? He pulls us through it. So whatever it is that you're afraid of, walk forward into it. God's going to go with you. God will provide for you in those moments of fear. And he will show himself to be a God far bigger than you ever imagined he would be. Let's pray. Our Father, we look at Gideon, and it's so easy to shake our heads and to sort of laugh at this judge who was doing his best, but his best was often filtered through his own criteria of what makes sense. Wow, we can so identify with Gideon. Because we live in a culture that doesn't push us to the Bible. It pushes us to enlightenment. It pushes us to common sense. It pushes us to rationalism and using our mind as the filter as opposed to your word, which looks so far above a wisdom that is merely our own. Father, you know the fear that paralyzes us every day. Whatever it is, we each have it. Would you be with us? Help us to remember Gideon. Thank you for putting us in those fearful moments that don't let us escape so that we will see that there is nothing bigger than you, that you are able to carry us through it as we face our fears and faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Next week... Book of Ruth.